0: What are we to to think and to do with the enemies of the people of God? What are you to think about and think of these people or to do to the people that are your enemies? Now, now, many people, whether you are familiar with a lot of Christianity or not, you you could probably quote the, you're supposed to love your enemies. Bless them, don't persecute them. You know, if they they persecute you, don't curse them back. Bless them instead. Some of us would would have some of those... uh, Answers come off the top of our head with what to do with the enemies of God in terms of our kind of own personal application. But if we were to think a little bit uh, holistically about this, what are we to say and do? Like, if, all right, if we're if we're carrying this out, if we're trying to love our enemies, that's a state of our hearts. We're trying to do what's best. For them, What are we to think of them? Are we to just let all these bad things happen and, and not act in any way? And what are we to think about God? Is, does God do that? Does God just say, I, I love these enemies, it's okay, they can kind of do what they want? Or, or how does God operate there? And those are interesting questions to work through according to the scripture, how this works out in our, in our ethics, and how this works out in our living, and we get to be informed by this from God's word. And in the book of Odiah, we see God's enemies are addressed. And so we know like we, we get more than just what are we to think about God's enemies. But, but what does God think about this? And how is God going to handle these situations with His enemies as well? So we, we get to see how we are to react as God reacts. That we do our, we are to love our enemies. We can trust God for how He's going to handle them. We can entrust ourselves and our enemies to God and wait to let Him do what is right. And so in the book of Obadiah, these 21 verses... Here's what we, we see in this short book. We see the pride of a nation. They're, they're a proud nation against God's people. We get to see the crimes that they've committed against God's people. And we get to see how God deals with them. We get to see a little bit more about what we see over and over again in the prophets. This, this day of the Lord, as it's called. So Obadiah is a 100% poetry. And it is packed full of how God is going to judge a wicked and proud nation. All that we'd hope for as we turn to a prophet, right? Obadiah was written in about, it was written after 587 uh, A.D. So if if you are, back that up, 587 before Christ, not now. And this is an important date. If you know some of your your church history, you know some of your history of of the Old Testament, you know that 587 is a big year. This was the year that the southern kingdom, the kingdoms are divided at this point. we've, We've moved forward. So in Genesis, we saw the call of Abraham. This is the start, in a way, of the people of God. And from Abraham came Isaac, came Jacob, came the 12 tribes. They were taken into captivity into Egypt for 400 years or so, give or take. God rescued them by performing mighty signs and powers and wonders in Egypt and brought them out and brought them into the promised land. They were in the promised land for quite some time, had some good kings. You remember some of them? David, Solomon. These were good kings before the Lord. They tried to, in a lot of ways, uphold the law of God, uphold the covenant they had had with the Lord. And so they're in the land, but... It didn't take long, and indeed we see this even in Solomon's life where the kings and the people of God did what they have always done from the beginning, and they started to drift away from the Lord and away from relationship with Him. And so God told them over and over again through different prophets, that so we see that they will be judged. You will, you will be judged for your sins if you continue on this way, and He calls them to repentance so often. He have this covenant with them. There's the covenant blessings that if you obey this covenant, things will go well for you in the land. Your enemies will be put to flight. You'll be provided for. But there were covenant curses as well. That if you don't obey God, that if you don't follow into this covenant, then you will be judged. And one of those judgments that God promised upon them was the judgment of exile. So 587 is a big year because in 587, that was when the the great kingdom of, of Babylon came with King Nebuchadnezzar and took the people of Israel, took the southern kingdom, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, took them into exile and burned down the city. I mean, the city was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so this is where we're at when we get to Obadiah, that they are at least after that point. It is a big point in history for the people of God in the Old Testament. They go into exile and they are in Babylon. That's where we get some of the great prophets like Daniel. You get to hear stuff about this. But this book specifically is unique in its intended audience. If you look in verse 1. It says, this is the vision of Obadiah. And thus says the Lord concerning Edom. Now, this is unique because this is a a prophet who is speaking from God. That is, these words are from God. They're not just his own words. The prophets are speaking to people on behalf of God. That their words are are held in that sort of, of account. That if they are saying things that are wrong, they are to be put to death. They are false prophets. Because they are claiming, thus saith the Lord. But if they are saying the right things, then we should take heed of their warnings. And his intended audience is unique here in the Scripture. That the intended audience really is the enemies of the people of God. It really is not the people of God. It's not the primary audience. This is a, a message for Edom. They need to hear this message. Now, now the Edomites, they were descendants of Esau. Another name for Esau, we haven't got there in Genesis, but you, you know that, that uh, Isaac came. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They were fighting from the beginning. They were still fighting as the people of God as they progressed. Another name for Esau was, was Edom. And they were neighbors, So they were neighbors to Judah and the people of Israel. I have a map up here for you. You can kind of see how close they were. They were really near. If that's big enough for you, you can see Edom kind of at the bottom. This is where they are. You can see Jerusalem, Judah. They would be neighboring countries, neighboring nations. And you think, oh, they're they're brothers, they're neighbors. This is good. No, they're brothers and they're neighbors. And so they have long been rivals and they had long been trouble to one another. They had fought often. They were particularly not the greatest friends and didn't carry out the the spirit of true brotherhood in the land. And Edom would have been particularly resented at this time. At the time that they were taken into exile. We're going to see more about that as we go through the book of Obadiah. But here's what was going on. Is that the great kingdom of Babylon is rolling into town and rolling through the world essentially and taking everything they want. They are destroying and capturing. They are the superpower on the globe. And they are coming to Jerusalem and and telling them that their time is up. That they are going to destroy them. And Edom, you're thinking, oh, here's a smaller nation around them. Surely they'll rally with the people of Judah and we'll fight against this kingdom the best that we can. No, that is not what happens. Uh, They had been cruelly indifferent at best. And we'll see their worst later on at Judah's and Jerusalem's demise by the Babylonians. And God has a message of warning for Edom. And the battle lines are drawn. Not between nations but between Edom and the Lord. Verse 1 continues... We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. So they're calling them to the battle lines. The lines have been drawn, and it's been drawn by the Lord. He is the one who is addressing them. And so the coming battle for Edom was from God. He has taken issue with them, and he is going to be clear as to why he has taken issue with them. It says, verse 2, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, "Who will bring me down to the ground?" So Edom, it was a unique kingdom, and they they'd become proud. They were a country that was or a nation that was strategically located. They had some a lot of mountainous territory, so they were hard to to attack. They were hard to get after. And they were kind of naturally defended. This is their capital city. You, you can see how hard this would be. They had the city on top of a plateau. So you can see how this city would, would be like impregnable against forces that would come to destroy them. Jerusalem could be surrounded, captivated, done away with. This one is a little bit harder. You have sheer cliffs around this city. Like, this is a place that is going to be hard to destroy. It is a natural fortress. And in their natural fortress, they are feeling like they are completely safe. They are feeling superior with where they're at. So much so that they would even say things like, Who will bring me down? I mean, this is this is Helmsteep of Lord of the Rings here, right? The, the people of Rohan run to Helmsteep thinking like, you cannot get us in here. And we know that, well, maybe if Saruman breeds an army of... Ururaai that would only bread to destroy men it might be able to get you you better be careful with your pride and the same thing is going on here right you think because of your position that no one can bring me down It's clear they feel safe they feel secure they feel confident they feel self-sufficient they do not need to team up with another nation they do not need to help anybody out they are fine on their own and I think verse 3 really sums up the, the their state of mind their state of heart when it says that the pride of your heart, says these things. That is, this nation, the nation of Edom, is a prideful nation. Their pride has done what all pride always does in every person from the beginning of history on. It has deceived them. It has blinded them to reality. They think that they're above others. They think they're safe from invasion. They think that they are undefeatable. And it reminds me of a king that thought the same way. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. Remember this king and great Babylonian king that actually destroyed Jerusalem? We read about him in Daniel chapter 4. It's a few verse, few pages over, if you flip over. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and, and Daniel warned him about this. like, God is going to bring you down, you need to repent and turn to Him. Nebuchadnezzar did not heed the warning and so we read this in Daniel chapter 4 verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, which from all accounts that we know, like this is a fabulous place, a great kingdom. And the king answered and he said, is this not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What great words from a king. He looks at his kingdom and he says, this is awesome. Who can do stuff like this? Only someone great like me. Our kingdom is so great. Look around at you. Like, look at greatness all around you. You can tell the air of superiority and supremacy in his voice and in his tone as he reads this. So he's trusting in something. He's trusting in the power of his kingdom. He's trusting in the power of his might. And here's what happens next. Verse 31 says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the fields, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And immediately... Their word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. God turned a man almost into a complete animal at his will, at his desire. And he was showing him something. You think that you are great, and really there's only one who's great, and that's me. And I will show you this by turning you into an animal. God has His ways of making sure we recognize His superiority and supremacy over all things. So He humbles the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom. So, His boast, if you were to hear His boast, if you were Israel, if you were Edom, if you were to hear Nebuchadnezzar's boast, you'd probably say, Yeah, that's right. You have legitimate reasons to boast. Your kingdom is great, you are powerful, you've destroyed all these nations. What can you not do? In worldly terms, his boast was completely legitimate. But he put his trust in the most secure place known to man. In his own kingship. In his kingdom. That was the most secure place. You wanted to be secure, you get on the right side of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. That's the most secure place. And yet what happens? He's dramatically humbled. Because there may be legitimate boasts in worldly terms. You might have a great king, a strong fortress, lots of money. You might have a place that's like Helm's Deep. All of those things, but they don't keep anyone from the humbling reach of God. So the boasts from Edom, the boasts from Nebuchadnezzar, it's a boast of pride from which is not too far from God's reach. And the problem is, is, this isn't just an Edom problem or a Nebuchadnezzar problem. This is a human problem. This is our problem. That we find safety and security and a lot of other things outside of God. One author says it this way, that the sad fact is that none of us are immune to the logic-defying, blinding effects of pride. Though it shows up in different forms and to differing degrees, it infects us all. And the real issue here is not if pride exists in our hearts. The real issue here is not if pride exists in hearts, it's where pride exists and how it is being expressed in your life. Scripture shows us that pride is strongly and dangerously rooted in all of our lives far more than most of us care to admit or even think about. It has done what it has always done is it has deceived us that we don't think, you probably even think like, no, like, I'm not that proud. And that's, you can know, you, can, you need to be wary of those kinds of Because we are deceived so often. Our hearts don't know. We will will move and put our trust in almost anything. We will put our trust in fortresses. We will put our trust in money, in bank accounts. We will put our trust in jobs and positions and power. We will put our trust in almost anything thinking, who will bring me down from this? How can I be defeated if I have this? But anything and everything that we put our trust in, our safety and our security and our comfort in, outside of God, is a place of pride. It's saying, I don't need God for this because I have this. I don't need you here, God. I've I've got enough money in the bank. I don't need you to provide daily bread for me. I've got enough power, God. I don't need you to take me anywhere or bring me someplace. I can rescue myself. I don't need your rescue. And here's what we read from the book of James. Here's what we read what God says to the proud. It's not like a, a distance from the proud. No, God is active in the people of pride. And it says that he actively opposes. God opposes the proud. There is an active opposition. To the disposition of all of our hearts. Of pride. I mean biblically. There is not much more stronger language. That can be used about a specific sin. Than can be used about pride. It is at the root of, of every sin. God hates Actively opposes pride. And so when a nation comes and says, who's going to bring me down? You can know that their judgment from God is present. And we see this in verse 4. Obadiah 4 says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars. Notice the, the images of height. Even like we have a plateau. It says, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. From there, I'll bring you down. They think they're safe. They think they're soaring with the eagles. And God says, I'm going to bring you down. And we do this too. I'm safe. I have this. I have all this money. I don't need anything provided for me. I have all these things, these resources in my my own strength. I, I don't need you. And we need you here too. Though that's not beyond God's reach. That God can bring us down. And He will humble the proud. He says this about Edom, and He declares their overthrow. Verse 5 says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. In other words, their overthrow is both inevitable and it's going to be very thorough. Pillagers, thieves, they're going to come in, and they would have been more merciful than your overthrow is going to be. They would have left some stuff behind. But this overthrow that you're about to face, nothing will stand. No one will stand is kind of the thought. All of the things that they are putting their trust in aren't going to deliver them. It is worse than thieves coming. They are going to be pillaged. And all the things they trusted in will fail them. Verse 7 goes on. All your allies that have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men? They shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Their location that they trusted in, that's going to be coming down. Their allies, they're deceiving them. They're going to turn against them. They're they're wise men. They're not that wise. They're going to be humbled. They're mighty men. They as well are going to be cut down is what the Lord is saying. So everything that they're counting on, everything that they're trusting in, all that's around them is going to fail them and going to be overthrown. Not one of the things that they are trusting in will stand. And these things are written... For our instruction that we might heed the warning given to Edom too. That the pride in our hearts deceives us as well. Saying that you're safe. Nothing can get you if you have this. You're secure if you have this. There's comfort only if you get this. If that this is anything other than God, then we are in a place of pride. That we need to listen to this warning very well. Because anything... Might or resources or anyone, allies or the wise as they were trusting in, trusted apart from God, will not deliver. And it was never meant to. It doesn't even have the capabilities to deliver. That God is the only one who is isn't contingent on anything. Everything else is contingent. Our lives, our money, our jobs, our power. All of those things are contingent upon something else. God existed before there was time. He is not contingent upon any. He does not need anything. Everything else needs something to continue on. God is the one who is eternal. Everything else is temporal. It had a start, it has an end. God is the only one who was simply there in the beginning. That's what we know about it. It's mind-blowing. God is the only one that has the power to deliver and to rescue. Nothing else can, can summon up all the power it needs to provide all safety, all security, all comfort that we are looking for. Only God can do that. Amen. And so the pride of this nation has brought the focus of God upon them, so much they would say, I'm gonna send you, Obadiah, right to this people, warn them, and so we, as the people of got gathered, to hear the warning too. They are going to be judged and overthrown. Their pride, like all pride, is going to bring them down. And it wasn't just evidence in their hearts. It was all over their actions, like all pride is as well. Continue on, verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob... See, here's how it's moving outward. They have pride in their heart, they think they're in a superior position, and it is moving outward to their relationships. And it will undoubtedly always do that in our lives. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. That is, pride is is clearly and primarily a vertical problem, but will undoubtedly have uh, vertical dimensions or horizontal dimensions where it will affect our relationships with others. Here it is affecting their relationship with their neighbors, with the people of God. It has gone out from them and they have acted in a way that was inappropriate, that was sinful toward the people of God. And judgment is pronounced upon Edom for their treatment of God's people. Listen to the language that is being used of God's people here. They are brother Jacob. In other words, he is tying them a little bit closer and saying, This is someone who is close to you, and listen to how you have treated them. It's not just the people of Israel, just the people of Judah. It's Jacob taking them back to the beginning and their closeness that they had in relationship between Jacob and Esau. He's making this making them aware of that. And here, as Babylon comes and threatens the people of God, the relatives of Jacob are nowhere to be seen in terms of aid. They do not come to help them, they don't even stay neutral, at least for very long. You know, you could think it'd be one thing, like, you could come help, but if, if you don't come help, at least, like, don't do anything against us. Yet this is not what we see. As Babylon pillaged and plundered Jerusalem, Edom was cruelly indifferent at best. And at worst, what they were doing is they were joining in the action. Jumping in to the battle, showing violence to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, Je- the fled. No one would have known the the, the ways of escapes and and the secret routes like their neighbors. Babylonians would have known these things, but the Edomites knew. And so when you're running for your life, when your city is being destroyed, and we do need to be reminded that this is real things that happen to real people. That Jerusalem was a city. And the people lived there with families and kids. And they were being overthrown. And some of them were fleeing for their lives. And as they're fleeing for their lives, they're running toward neighboring nations like Edom. And as they're running, they're hoping that maybe they can find safe harbor. And what is Edom doing? They're not coming out saying, come on, join us. We'll find a cave somewhere. They're saying, oh, Babylon, hey, we found some guys over here and we kept them captive for you. Or they just disposed of them themselves. This is what brother Esau is doing to Brother Jacob. They'd join the fray. They'd wait for those who fled. They'd turn them over. They'd ambush them. All of these things so that they could gain favor in the eyes of the superpower. So that they could say, look what we've done, Babylon. You don't want to destroy us or mess with us. We're on your side. And so what they're doing is wicked because they're leveraging their position. They're leveraging their situation toward their own end. Exploiting the people of Israel for their own good. And they treacherously made a mockery of the people of Judah. As they're being destroyed. You can read this in verse 12. These are the things they're doing. God's telling them, do not do these things. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Once again, notice how close the language is. This would have been a a deep cut for the people of God. As they are closely connected. They weren't always friends. But so closely connected. a, A similar descendant. Don't gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people. This is what they were doing. They would come in as well and they would plunder the situation. They would plunder goods. They would plunder houses. They were coming in and swooping in to do these things when Babylon had taken what they wanted. Don't gloat over, the. don't enter the gate of my people in the day of a calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Don't loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off fugitives. Do not hand over survivors in the day of his distress. All of these things were things they were practicing. And the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people was all things that God brought about. We don't want to... Go around that. God said, if you do not repent, like you will be judged. You will be taken into exile. I'm raising up people to come and to take you into exile. Please return. Please repent. Turn from your sins. And they didn't do it. And so at the hand of God, Nebuchadnezzar comes. And Jerusalem is destroyed. And people are taken into exile. All of those things are true. And God had warned His people over and over about the curses of the covenant. And after many warnings and all these things had gone on, God brought this judgment. Judah had sinned and God judged it. And yet... God tells Edom, even though God had spoken judgment upon Judah, you can't do the same. You do not get to rejoice over the people of God when they're taken away, when they are judged. You do not get to be indifferent or to gloat. Look at the list of of do nots. This is a strong list. Do not do these things. And what Edom was doing struck a nerve with God. And we need to know why. Because this is important. When, when God speaks this directly and this much of judgment, we, want, we might want to know what's going on here. What would bring on these kind of words from God? Something has been struck here. A nerve has been hit. What's happening? And I think here's what's happening. That The descendants that we're speaking of, the people that have been judged, are the descendants of Jacob, verse 12 says. Descendants of Jacob. That is, God had called Abraham He said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. This was the same promise passed down to Jacob, who didn't have 12 sons, who are the people of God. It says, these are the people of Judah, verse 12. These are my people, verse 13. In other words, God is serious because these are His people. These are what? He's called them. And God takes seriously the treatment of His people because of His close association with them. He's the one who, in Genesis chapter 12, we see this. He's the one who initiated relationship with this people. He's the one that's moving in to closely associate with them. He is the one who wants to be called their God. He wants them to call, I am your God. Say, my God, and you are my people. He is the one who says, you are my son, and I am your father. This is God's doing. Abraham didn't look up and say, I want to call you my God. Be my father. No, God took the initiative for all this. And so the language that is used between God and his people all through the scripture is close. It's intimate. It's tight knit. Father, son, my people, my God. And so to gloat or to boast or to ridicule or to any way hurt or harm God's people was to nearly do the exact same thing to their God. Whether this came from the inside, which it did sometimes. Ezekiel 34, you see some harsh words for some shepherds in Israel who were praying on the weak, who weren't taking care of the sheep like they should have been. God has harsh words for them. Or whether it comes from the outside, like it does him, that God always has harsh words of judgment for crimes against His people. And this is not just true of the Old Testament. That the people of God now aren't the people of Israel. That the people of God are those who are in Christ, the true Israel. Those who have put their faith in Him. Those now are the people of God as displayed and only manifested in the only place in the church. And here's what we see about the people of God and how God associates with them now. In Acts chapter 9, you might remember this guy. He was a terrorist. His name was Saul. He was destroying the people of God everywhere he could. That's what his goal was. And yet he walks on a road and sees a blinding light. Jesus speaks out of this light. And he says to him some unique words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, it's not what he says. Why are you persecuting the people of God? Why are you persecuting those who follow the way? No, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now at this point, you, you ought to know the story that Jesus had died and risen and been raised up to heaven. He wasn't around, bodily, present in all these persecutions. Oh, but he was there. Because that's where His people were. When you persecute the people of God, you're persecuting God, He says. Why are you persecuting Me? So Jesus had so identified with His people that to persecute His people was to persecute Him. He had bled for them. He had bought them. And so when you treat them that way, it's as if you're treating the King that way. So to treat God's people cruelly was to treat Jesus cruelly. And like any good father, abuse for the sons does not go. Can't. Let that go. And this means for all of us that we need to be very careful with what we say, how we treat, how we act toward the people of God. Because God is serious about that. I think that this should serve as an encouragement. If you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus and you're part of the people of God, this ought to be encouraging to you. Think about this. Here's what we know about God. He's just. He's going to do what's right. We read this in when we were talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, well, not do what's just. God will do the right thing. He will take the right course of action every single time. He will be just in all that He does, in all of His workings. He will do the right thing. So not one crime, not one persecution, not one ill deed, not one cruel treatment toward the people of God is going to slide by God. He's going to do what's right. He's going to exact justice according to His holiness, according to His righteousness, according to His great character. So here He declares war on Edom. Judgment upon their crimes that they've committed against Judah. But Christians all over the world can be encouraged by this. This may not ring true to us because we have it so easy. But this should be an encouragement to the people of God because the people of God have always been the people of God who suffered. And suffered unjustly. Just for being the people of God, they've suffered. They've endured persecution, they've endured cruelty, torture, all of these things. And here's what we can say to them, and here's what we can know if should we ever face these things. That God knows everything that's going on. And that God is just and He's going to act. Doesn't just let things go. That we are never alone in our suffering, that nothing is unseen or unheard. And our God will do just as He's promised to do. This should serve as a warning as well to all those who would be the enemies of the people of God of all time. All of them need to be put on notice. There's a warning here for you that God will act in judgment. So we can say to ISIS and to false teachers in the church and to those who would be dividing people in the church, to those who would persecute the people of God, That you can know that just as God judged Edom, God is going to judge you for such actions that you have committed. It may appear that you are winning. And sometimes it does. But it's not always going to be that way. I like these words from John Piper. He says, when I look at the beheadings and I hear someone ask, where is your supreme Christ? There are places in the world that's exactly what they're saying. As they're chopping off heads, they are saying, where's your God? Because our God doesn't act that way. Our God tells us to go and we destroy things. It doesn't seem like your God's really around. He's probably kind of a weak God because we keep killing you. This is what's happening. So this is real. And he says to them, my answer is really easy. He is in heaven storing up almighty wrath and fury to pour out on all those who commit such sins. That's where he is. And you better get right with him and repent or you will all likewise perish. This should be encouraging to the people of God. It should be a warning to those who would be enemies to the people of God. But it also shows us this. A God that's willing to act like that. To protect, to provide, to make sure that His people are taken care of. To make sure that no injustice is done to them ultimately and finally. It shows us how fiercely loving God is, doesn't it? Who who will go to such extremes to make sure His people are taken care of? A God who loves those people dearly one says this, commentated on on Obadiah. In the book of Obadiah, God is a fierce personal enemy to the proud and to the opposer of His people because He fiercely loves His people. And remember, the people that He's talking about are people that He just judged for their sin. And He's still fiercely loving them and protecting them and judging those who would come against them. Only an omnipotent God, who is also a God of love, would say such things and would do such things, would act in these ways for His sinful people. In other words, if you're part of the people of God, your God is really good. God is really good. For all those who are in Christ, we can know God fiercely loves us. He came to us. That He died for us, that He bled for us, that He fought for us, that He died and rose for us. That the good shepherd calls His sheep by name. That He's leading them in good places. That He doesn't run and hide when the wolves come. But He's the one that takes care of them finally and ultimately. That He doesn't worry about His sheep because He's willing to lay down His life for the sheep. And He did lay down His life for these sheep. Why? Because they're His sheep. And if you mess with the sheep, you're messing with the shepherd. And I don't think you want to mess with the shepherd because death tried to mess with him too and it didn't work out so well for death. Edom messed with the sheep. And they need to hear what God promises is going to be done to such people. So the pride of the nation of Edom and their crimes against God's people has brought judgment upon them. And in Obadiah, this judgment is imminent. That Edom is told they're going to face retribution. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So Edom might have thought that they'd won or that they got away with it. I mean, after all, Judah did go into exile. They're there for a while. They have no power whatsoever. I mean, they can't physically bring retribution on Edom at all. They probably thought that they'd won, but God warns them. There is a day coming. The day of the Lord is upon all the nations. And so, in other words, be careful what you do, because this day is near to you. Now, the day of the Lord is used over and over and over again in the prophets. In the day of the Lord, it looks forward to a time when God is going to set all things right. When there will be judgment for the enemies of the people of God, those who have mistreated the people of God, those who have been cruel, who have given God the stiff arm. All of those things, on the day of the Lord, they will receive what is due to them. It's a day of dread. It's a day of judgment. There's all sorts of language, poetry that is used in the the prophets to speak of the, the, the horror of this day. But it's also a day of salvation, a day of glory for all of those who have trusted in God, that He will protect them, that they will ultimately be defeated, that God will take care of them to the very end. So it's a day that looks forward to judgment and to salvation. And Edom's defeat was near, was spoken of here in Obadiah. Their day is coming soon. This day is a prelude. The, the, the day of judgment upon Edom was just a prelude, an installment to that final day of the Lord. And Psalmist says something like this in, in Psalm 75. says, at that time that I appoint, I will judge with equ- equity. Now he's speaking of, kind of the, the judgment of this day. When the earth totters... In all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That is what is to come on the day of the Lord. The judgment that God has been storing up will be poured out finally and fully upon them. And the day of Edom's judgment is an installment to this day of dread, the ultimate day of dread. But it will also be a day of glory. And we read about that here, verse 17. But in Mount Zion, notice kind of the the shift. In Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. They're returned back into the land. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Edomites. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of Shephalah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And the Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the exiles of the host, of this host of the people of Israel, shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephirad shall possess the cities of the Negev. So there's a, a turning. That's happened here. That the people of God, they're, they're going to be restored in ways. There's a salvation for the people of God. That, that they weren't utterly destroyed. That they weren't utterly consumed. That they're still there. That worship will return to the city of God. That's what's happening here. That, that worship is restored there. That the land is restored. That their enemies are going to be put to flight. All the things that God had promised to the people of God are going to happen. That Edom won't win in the end. Instead, well, they'll be consumed. Completely done away with, according to this passage. So what an encouraging thought to the people of God in exile. It won't always be this way. Amen. That God is going to act on your behalf and bring about what He promised you from the beginning. That those who were in exile to Babylon or who even remained in the land and were oppressed by those who were ruling them at the time, you can be encouraged that, that this is not always the way it's going to be. Now, now this did happen, this, this prophecy here, it did happen dimly, I'd say dimly, because thinking of, of Brighton, it didn't happen fully for the people of God. They did return from exile. They they did rebuild the temple. They did have some worship. They did have some land. All those things did happen, but they were only an installment of what was to come. And these things did happen to Edom that by the end of the Old Testament, by the end of Malachi, Edom is no longer. And how quickly the judgment of God was poured out on them, and, and they basically stopped existing. So these things did happen. Edom is no more. You won't find them. They are not a great kingdom. But I think that Obadiah is pointing us forward and onward to to something bigger than just the return from exile, just the worship in Jerusalem, just the fall of Edom here. I think those are portraying in in preludes or, or previews of what is to come. And I think that 21 pushes us even further. The saviors will go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And here it is, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I think all of those things were preludes. They are leading up to this one great climatic event where the kingdom shall be God's. This book is a book about the kingdom of God. That God wins in the end. That all that that all that was promised, that all that was prophesied has led up to this one great climax. That all the kingdoms are the Lord's. That Babylon and Edom and Judah are all being shown that really there is one king and that there is one kingdom and that he rules over all. So all kingdoms fall or rise at the word of this king. Because he alone is the king. And He alone will reign and rule that all of humanity and every kingdom, all of it, is moving in one direction. And the end is this verse, that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This verse points us beyond return from exile, beyond the fall of Edom. Those were installments of this great day to come. But one came proclaiming the kingdom, and He said this, not that the kingdom of God is going to come, but the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen. This is Jesus, God in flesh. He is saying when he pronounces the kingdom, he is pronouncing war on all other kingdoms. And he is saying that the rule and reign of God has begun. That it has started. That I am here. And Jesus came as the King, and He suffered. Unlike most kings, He suffers, He dies, but He doesn't stay in the grave. He raises, He sits now, it says, at the right hand of the Father until, Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, God talking to Himself, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the message that Jesus says when He says the kingdom is at hand and he carries out the work of the kingdom, here's where we're at in the story, is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and the Father says, you you sit here until I'm going to make everyone your footstool. In other words, that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the time period we're in now. We've already seen the start of it. That Jesus came, and he said, anywhere the faith spreads, those who believe in me, they're part of this kingdom. They're actually a kingdom of priests unto my name. And that my kingdom is going to win in the end. We're part of that already not yet kingdom. Awaiting that day. But we should not ever be in suspense. As to what the end is going to be. Because we know. We have that picture for us. And Revelation says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpets. And there were loud voices in heaven saying. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. All of history is moving in this direction. It may not appear so, but this is where we're going. If you know Christ, this is great reason to rejoice. That the kingdom shall be the Lord's. If you don't, we say repent. While we're in the already not yet, there is space for you to turn from sin and live. To trust in this one true king who will reign over all finally and fully in the end. Join the kingdom. Trust in him. And God gave us a a sacred symbol to remember his victory. That his kingdom has already started. And to remember that it's coming soon. And this symbol is the Lord's Supper. This is, a, this is a, a sacred act for the people of God where we look back to what Christ has done and see that He is the one who said the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, that the kingdom has started and all who repent and put their faith in me now have a part of this kingdom because I have given them and bought them a part. And so we have a place at this table because the king has come and died and rose again that we might have a place at this table. But this table is also pointing us forward. In the here and now, we're reminded at this table that we have a table of victory set before us by our King. That on enemy ground, we can pronounce the victory. And that we are saying that Jesus is going to come back one day. And it will be soon. We say all of those things when we take this meal. And so we ask you not to take it lightly. To sit and reflect if you need to before you come. And to, if you're not a believer, not take this meal. But instead to take Christ, submit your life to the true King and live life for Him. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank You that one day the Kingdom is going to be Yours. That we're going to know finally and fully that You're the one true King. God, help us to trust that now when we see things that don't look like that. That You're moving everything in one direction to where You are going to be supreme. Father, I pray that those who are not part of the kingdom, who have not believed, that You would turn their hearts, even now, that they would trust in You, the one true King, while there's still the time in the already-not-yet kingdom that You've started. God, I pray for Your people, that we'd be encouraged by Your words of judgment upon Your enemies, that we would... Take them as a warning where we need to. Take them as a warning that we take them as an encouragement where we need to be encouraged. And that we'd move forward in a way that would represent truly as ambassadors the one true king. God, help us to do that. As your people, we're asking for your help. That we might be a glory unto your name. God, we need you. And we also pray that you'd come soon and set everything right again. Amen.